This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Toby Pearl, author of the nonfiction book, Terror to the Wicked. I think at the, at the time, you have this guilty verdict. And I think there's even a moment of surprise. Um, it worked. This jury trial did work. We'll be back with Toby Pearl in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Toby Pearl, author of the nonfiction book, Terror to the Wicked. She has degrees in law and international relations from Boston University and studied international law at University of Hong Kong. Her book, Terror to the Wicked, is about the first full-fledged jury trial in the New World in 1638. At the time, in colonial New England, the Native American Pequot tribe was at war with the colonists of the Massachusetts Bay. Tensions ran high between colonists and Native Americans and among the indentured servants who were in Massachusetts to serve the Puritans. The book focuses on an incident where a young Nimpuk tribesman traveling through the woods on his way home is stabbed by a runaway indentured servant named Arthur Peach. Peach and his gang don't kill the young man who escapes and just before he later dies tells his story to Providence's governor, Roger Williams. A manhunt ensues and Plymouth convenes its first trial with Thomas Prince, the governor, presiding as the judge. While it appears by all accounts the jury would side with the white settlers, the jury rules Peach and his gang guilty and they are sentenced to death. We began the interview with Toby Pearl sharing how she got into writing from her work as a lawyer. I worked at, interned at an environmental law clinic undergrad, and um, that experience led me to apply to law school. And once I was in law school in Boston, I began working, um, interning, and then I got a small fellowship to keep my summer work there going, and I actually um, began working there after law school. And my work there was always related to housing preservation, helping um, mostly homeless families at risk of homelessness. So that was kind of the work I'd always done. Um, And then I worked just generally in the nonprofit sector in Boston, um, doing an assortment of things, violence prevention work, but um, mostly always related to housing. You know, I graduated from high school in Costa Rica, so I... I hesitate to say I'm a Spanish speaker now because it's been decades and it's gotten rusty, but I was always kind of the Spanish speaking um, attorney, housing attorney on call or housing advocate on call. So it just suited me and I found the work enormously gratifying. And then I started a family with my husband and I was at home with kids and it was around that period of time where I came across these events while I was doing genealogical research and um, I, I couldn't believe that these events weren't kind of in the history books or that a, a full-length book hadn't been written about what had happened and I thought, you know what, maybe I'll give this a try. I'm, I'm at home, I've got you know, the, the kids, that's kind of the primary thing I'm doing, but they take naps and there's some downtime and I, I like having a little project. So I, you know, I took a year or so working on a proposal and um, it just kind of came together. It was a bit of a one step at a time process for me. And I was very, very, very lucky that uh, one editor was interested and she turned out to be my dream editor. And she also turned out to have this wonderful quality where she said, Um, take your time. 
because even though I, I went to law school and, and worked as an attorney, I'm someone who does like to take my time with things, and I wanted to really get this right. You mentioned that when you were doing ge- genealogy, you found out about these events. So can you describe these events that you're talking about, and, and how did you alight on it? Because once you start looking, you unfolded a whole world. So what did you find first? Sure. Um, so after the birth of my third child, I started doing some genealogical research. And, you know, my family, um, that side of my family was from New England. And I just started kind of digging around and I was curious and just kind of putting things together. And um, I came across this ancestor who was um, the governor of Plymouth Colony um, back in 1638. And he was a judge. And I, you know, I just, I always think it's funny. I had grown up wanting to be a judge. I don't know. I just, I always think it's funny when you see these things kind of repeat themselves over the branch of of a family tree. But so that kind of sparked my curiosity. But then I got into the weeds on the trial and I thought, wow, this is, uh, this is really something. And the record back then is just very sparse, but a lot was written about this trial. And um, to give you a quick overview, it's um, the events are um, that I detail in the book um, involves the cold-blooded murder of an American Indian man. He was a Nipmuc um, trader. He was a fur trader. His name was Penawanyanquist, or that's what he was called at the time, at least. He was murdered by a group of four escaped indentured servants outside of Plymouth Colony in 1638, kind of on the outskirts of the settlement. And um, what was remarkable was that despite cultural differences and to the surprise of many people on both sides, given it was um, this unfolded against the backdrop of the Pequot War, um, both American Indians and settlers came together to seek justice. Um, And from there, there's a manhunt, um, this landmark jury trial. And um, I, I was really fascinated with the idea of a jury trial and, and what it could do for people. And this was the first jury trial in the new world? This was the first significant jury trial. There were certainly um, muddled kind of misunderstandings between settlers and disputes and property disputes and, and other kind of smaller items. And um, there had even been in the very early days of the settlement, um, one neighbor shot another and and it was kind of quickly um, handled. But this was the first sit down, here are the jurors, here are their names, here's due process, here's what it's going to look like. Um, we're going to swear you in and have oaths. And this was the first significant jury trial in in the new world. And it was a murder trial. And um, And the people involved knew that all eyes were on them in terms of how this would be handled. Um, would it be handled equitably? And would a jury trial even function um, in this kind of bare bones settlement? So it was it was a bit of an experiment. These white settlers, whether they were indentured ser- servants or not, um, killed a Native American. And we'll talk about indentured servitude and what that really means. But that was um, really crossing boundaries uh, that some people might have thought at the time and some people did were acceptable to cross. So I'm wondering if you can give us kind of a layout of what was going on because there was a war going on. There were a few different Native American communities that had different levels of power over each other or over certain territories. So can you kind of just set the scene of of what was going on there? 
Sure. So the murder took place at the height of summer in 1638. The Pequot War, which had been ongoing at that time, um, battles had kind of waned over the summer, but the war had begun in 1636. And early histories will document that it was the murder of this infamous uh, merchant sailor who had a, an awful reputation um, by the last name of Stone. Um, he was murdered in his boat by uh, Pequot men. And early histories will say that's what kind of launched the Pequot War, but it's now widely understood that um, it was much more of an excuse for a land grab by um, Massachusetts Bay Colony settlers, um, present-day Boston, Massachusetts. At the time in 1638, you had Plymouth Colony, which first colony, um, well-established, had been profiting by selling and trading with the newcomers, Bay Colony, which was settled later. Um, that had all been going well, but by 1638, you have Bay Colony um, surpassing Plymouth Colony both um, in terms of population and um, their economy was doing well and they had this wonderful harbor and things were going well for Mass Bay Colony. And it's hard to even say this because the Pequot War was an act of genocide um, and it was a horrifying thing. But to, to put it out there, that was also serving Bay Colony settlers well in a very kind of strategic way. If their aim was to have more land and expand their territory and annex land to the West, it was working for them. It was horrifying what happened during the Pequot War. It's just interesting that it's not held in our origin story very well. And if you go to the battle sites, which were, I would argue, the bloodiest in American history, more so than Civil War battles, they're kind of hidden. Um, they're not on local maps. They're not really marked. It, I don't want to say this is kind of our secret, um, dirty history of American history, but but it is to some degree. Um, so that was all unfolding. And then you have um, the Narragansett, who you know, if you think of um, President present day Rhode Island, held that territory. And then you have the Wampanoag, who were bordered Plymouth Colony and Massasoit, the leader of the Wampanoag. And you have Massasoit using his friendship with the settlers to bolster his own power. And, you know, if you think of Rhode Island and you think of Narragansett Bay, Narragansett Bay used to be Wampanoag territory. So he he was struggling, and Massasoit was struggling in, in his own um, context. So there was a lot of geopolitical maneuvering afoot when the murder happened. And it was in everyone's interest in Plymouth Colony to ensure that neighboring tribes did not form alliances, tribes who were at odds with each other otherwise. But if they felt threatened by the murder of Penawanyanquis, who was a Nipmuc tribesman, which was a subsidiary tribe to the Narragansett, the Narragansett were a protectorate of the Nipmuc, the Narragansett could have formed an alliance with the Wampanoag, and both tribes could have formed a formidable um, offense against Plymouth Colony. So th there was a lot unfolding, and some people had an interest in that war continuing, and some people had an interest in that war ending. In general, day-to-day, -day, though, how would you say in the area where this took place, the relations were? Because 
you know, you, you illustrated that they needed each other for trade and for knowledge. Right. Right. There was a true symbiotic relationship. You have these um, terrible battlefields out in, in present-day Connecticut, which, you know, if you think about how long it would take to walk, very few people had horses back then. Um, a lot of indigenous travel was on machine or canoe, um, but to travel, to use a messenger to get from Connecticut to Mass Bay or Plymouth Colony, um, in some ways, what was going on in Connecticut was probably felt very remote. Um, you're right that the kind of everyday existence for um, men, women, children in Plymouth Colony um, was rich with interaction between um, indigenous people and um, settlers. And um, those interactions were just absolutely commonplace. And um, there was less, there was no custom of knocking when entering buildings at the time, um, at least on the indigenous side. So it was, you see a lot, this kind of, um, comments about how indigenous people would kind of just walk into someone's home and, um, interactions would ensue. And these were interactions that involved, um, tremendous assistance on the, part of um, Wampanoag toward settlers, teaching them how to farm, how to um, irrigate and fertilize their soil so that their crops would grow, which involved using the local um, fish, planting the fish into the soil. I mean, there was just um, from morning till sunset, um, daily interactions that often were very positive. Um, so this random murder outside of the declared violence of the Pequot War did catch people off guard. And can you talk about the structure of power within the settler community? Because there was a lot of power. People were sometimes knowingly, sometimes tricked into coming to the new world to become indentured servants. It was usually a time period that they would serve and then they could be free. Can you talk about that power structure? About 17% of the population were indentured servants, and these were largely men, sometimes women, um, sometimes very young um, uh, boys. And these indentured servants usually served for seven years, um, and they served in someone's household. Um, they were doing all kinds of manual labor, farm work, and uh, the conditions were not good. And there, whoever ran that household, the the man of the household as the times kind of dictated was in charge and could um deal out punishment as he saw fit and um you know i documented a case in the book of a young boy who was who was beaten to death uh whipped to death and you know not properly fed conditions were not good for indentured servants and if there were infractions um let's say they use language that um was not welcome in their household, their indenture contract could be extended. So you had people serving years upon years, and then sometimes th there was no end in sight. Um, those years could just continue on for minor infractions or for debt racked up. Yeah, it, it was um, an awful situation. And as you point out, at the beginning of, of this experiment with indenture servitude, people were promised land, you know, come over, we'll give you room and board, we'll pay for your passage. When you complete your indenture, you'll have 100 acres of land. And then that kept getting cut down. So then, you know, people would be promised 20 acres or one acre or 
only an acre if, if they were a good person and had completed their indenture contract. So um, I think Arthur Peach had two years left, if I'm remembering correctly, on his indenture contract. And um, he had been working in the home of Edward Winslow, former governor of um, Plymouth Colony. And um, at that time, he had racked up debt. He had impregnated a female um, servant. And um, that's when he decided to escape. And Arthur Peach himself had fought in the Pequot War. Um, it's possible he had fought in Europe before coming over um, to New England. Um, and, and that's kind of the situation he found himself in when he decided to take these woodland trails out of Plymouth Colony during the night and um, bring three other indentured servants with him, which would have really smarted for the leadership in Plymouth Colony. Um, they were doing everything they could to secure more workers, and this was kind of exactly what they did not need to have happen. Yeah, so Arthur Peach is the murderer. He was done with his indentured servitude. He had impregnated this young woman, which had ramifications because, I mean, not only the times um, that it was and, and how that looked when they weren't married, but also because they were basically, they were owned. And he, when he went out on his journey to escape, he wasn't out on a murderous um, rampage it sort of happened. They were they were hungry. They were lost. They didn't have resources. And along comes this young, vital young man who is a, a whiz at being a trader. He can make relationships with other tribes that um, not everyone can. And he's just kind of at the peak of his life. And he's carrying he's carrying beads that could help serve them. So it wasn't premeditated and it was definitely instigated by Peach, but it just kind of happened. And, and the fact was he actually didn't die right away. I'm just wondering if you can talk about sort of the drama of that and, and then how your research found all of these details. Sure. It was a dramatic moment. It was a very dark moment. You did have Penawanyanquist at the peak of his life, and um, he seemed to be an, a very impressive, uh, resourceful young person. And um, he must have had incredible skills to have been sent on this mission. And um, the one thing I would note was that Arthur Peach and his um, three companions were lost in the woods at this point. Um, they had made it as far as kind of the surrounding area near Providence, Rhode Island. You know, it, it was the height of summer. The mosquitoes are awful. I've hiked those woods quite a bit. It's, um, it probably was a very unpleasant place to be without food or water, much water. I don't know if, if the water there close at hand was really um, potable, but he found himself there and they did see Penawanyank was cross this trail a day before, the night before the attack happened. And Arthur Peach did say to his companions, I, I'm going to kill him and take what he has from him. I'm going to attack him and take what he has from him. And when Penawanyank was completed his trade at a trading outpost owned by Plymouth Colony, he traded beaver fur for um, three coats, but mostly um, the real prized item uh, was a tremendous amount of wampum. These were the polished quahog shells that were the currency of the day. And um, he had an enormous quantity of 
these um, of this wampum as he departed and walked back on this lonely, desolate trail. So I describe it in the book. It, he's carrying the satchel filled with rattling wampum, and it's it's like someone departing from a bank with a a bag of gold in a quiet alley. I mean, it's it's kind of like asking for trouble. And um, unfortunately, Peach was trouble. I mean, it, it just couldn't have been a worse scenario. And Peach lured him over, asked him to sit, offered him tobacco, and then attacked him. And what no one could have seen coming, and it was, you know, just the fact that Peach had this um, deadly dagger um, was a little unusual. Um, it, these weapons were prized items that not everyone had, but he did have this in his possession. He attacked Penawan Yanquis, um, but what no one could have seen coming, you know, Penawan Yanquis was unarmed and he was up against four men. He escaped into the nearby swamps and he was able to hide himself um, overnight. And the next day he dragged himself toward a, a different part of the trail where he hoped that passing Narragansett tribesmen would find him, and that's indeed what happened. And the Narragansett tribesmen contacted Roger Williams, the founder of Providence, Rhode Island, and let them let him know about this murder, um, or at that point, violent attack. Penawanyanquis still lived. And by the time Roger Williams got to Penawanyanquis, Still bent on saving his life, Penawan Yanquis was able to state this dying declaration and name his attackers before he succumbed to his wounds and died. Um, so it, it was an incredible moment, and it was one that Roger Williams, um, who was a prolific writer and a, a really an excellent writer, he detailed. So there was quite quite a lot out there for researcher and it was it it just became a very long process years long of gathering all the details that kind of unfolded during the attack and in the aftermath well from reading your book you have so many footnotes and you don't have much that you can quote that's lengthy, right? So you might have like a sentence or two and you have to piece all of these various researches, research pieces together. How did you take these small bits that you got and organize them and turn it into a narrative? Well, right. That was always the concern. Was there enough material here to tell this story in the form of a book? Because it felt like an important story. It felt like an interesting story. It was significant. But was there enough? And and when I say that there was so much written, you have a good point. I mean, in the scheme of things, there was almost nothing written about it. Um, but compared to um, the way other events were detailed, you know, usually you go and look for a detail um, from this time period and maybe you find a word or a sentence. And here with this murder, you would find a paragraph. So there was much more comparatively, but still very, a very thin historical record. And I reread what I did have. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times. And it, it seems, you know, it might seem that that would be a um, fruitless exercise, but it took about a year of doing that until I noticed, you know, something new. In, in that one paragraph. And that led me on kind of the most incredible adventure of the book, 
um, and kind of the research find that I'm most proud of. But I don't know how else I would have come about succeeding in that if I hadn't just gone back to the few words I did have over and over and over again. And it was easy enough to write up the events in kind of a detailed, hopefully active, interesting, chronological manner. But it was the overlay of, of research um, that provided kind of those, those rich moments to give you a sense of what it might have been like to have been right there. I think, you know, we have a pretty long view now of history. And I think what's really important about this story and, and what's interesting is what did it all mean? You know, who were these players? So so bringing Arthur Peach and his gang to jury trial was in itself a decision because of various reasons, because they didn't want the reputation of indentured servitude to get overseas and have people not want to do it. If he was escaping, it was it didn't look good for the people who basically owned him. It, there were people that questioned if uh, an indigenous life is, is worth it to go to a jury trial. They knew it would be setting precedent. So there were so many social, political factors at play, even deciding it to bring it to, to trial. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Sure. Um, that's exactly right. Some people had a real vested interest in um, trying to see uh, the Peach Gang, as they became known, severely punished. Others, uh, the opposite. Um, you know, if, if word made it back to England that foreign gentry servants had been um, found guilty and a guilty verdict meant death, um, that could really kind of cool the interest in um, indentured servants coming over to New England and their whole labor structure was dependent on these indentured servants at the time. Um, and the the real crux of the matter was also the Pequot War. What would this murder of a Nipmuc man mean um, for the neighboring tribes, for the Narragansett, for the Wampanoag, what kind of instability did that speak to? And um, there were trading relations that, you know, these are treaties um, that were formed to protect Plymouth Colony's trading post that were multi-party treaties that were well-established and everyone had this vested interest financially to see trading continue and how could it if um, an indigenous trader might be murdered in the woods? Everyone in England was desperately awaiting beaver fur. It was a prized commodity. And if it could not be safely traded, if indigenous people felt unsafe and they were hearing nothing but horrendous, terrifying details of the violent battles and genocide of the Pequot, attempted genocide. So... Everyone had competing interest in the trial, and that it was a jury trial touched on the settlers and the settler leadership, their interest in, in this building block of democracy. And when the settlers, before they even arrived, when they wrote the Mayflower Compact, there was, from the very beginning, you know, we think about kind of our democracy and our, our from stemming from our independence from the British and really from 1620 and before the settlers even arrived when they were kind of on the Mayflower waiting to get onto shore, there were these ideas brewing about 
what democracy would look like, what for the people, by the people, how that would work and what it would look like. And if you think about the tyranny that they faced in England and you look at what the one safeguard might be against violent tyranny, you think about a jury trial. And it, it might not seem obvious because there's so many other rights like the right to bear arms, the right to vote, free speech. None of those rights were very important um, to the earliest settlers of Plymouth Colony. They, they did not have those rights. Um, bearing arms was a privilege. Um, their speech was severely um, monitored and curtailed. They really had very few rights. But the one right that they did want was a jury trial. And you really only have to look to um, like a modern day example and see um, like what is unfolding with Alexei Navalny in Russia. Um, you know, I don't know the circumstances very closely, but I'm sure he did not have a jury trial. You know, if, if you are dealing with tyranny, a jury trial is going to be the one um, structure where 12 of your neighbors um, with no special skills, just 12 people in your community might be able to step up and prevent one tyrant from killing you, sending you to jail for a lifetime. So I, I think they were experimenting with, with that. And politically, it was also very dangerous because the murder itself could have set off a tribe settler war, but a prosecution could also set off such a war. Right. Absolutely. I, and there were certainly people who felt that the trial could ignite tensions all the more. And Massasoit himself did not want to see Arthur Peach convicted for the murder. Um, so you you really did have competing interest people with um, who saw the need for a trial very differently. And it was, it was a time of um, chaos and, um, you know, people, neighbors shouting at each other. I mean, it, it was, um, there was quite a bit of leeway for some, some pretty strong discussions um, back and forth between neighbors and in the settlement about how this should unfold. And so once it was decided it was going to be a jury trial, then they had to choose the jury. Can you talk about that process? Sure. This seems like it was going to be so straightforward when I started the research, but I quickly realized the um, the problem that they faced. They, one, um, did not have a huge population. As I said, you know, Bay Colony was kind of um, surpassing Plymouth Colony in, in prestige and population at this point. So Plymouth Colony had about... 550 people or so, 17% uh, were indentured servants who were um, not considered for jury duty. Uh, women were not considered, elderly, sick, um, children were not considered. So um, Plymouth Colony leadership uh, were not considered. Miles Standish, who led the um, troops, could not be considered on and on. So, you know, you had some big figures there in Plymouth Colony, none of them could serve on the jury. So then you start thinking, well, who's left? You know, they're really just dealing with, I don't know, you know, a handful of folks who um, could serve. And then you think, well, who are these these people? You know, what what's their story? What kind of mindset are they going to bring? And um, one way I was able to figure that question out was looking at their probate records, which were pretty detailed and well-preserved because people didn't have much and they wanted to pass down what they did have to their uh, children, descendants. Uh, so their libraries and books were very detailed. And I was surprised to find 
um, you know, folks who main their main task was, you know, 12 hour days farming, 10 hour days, however long that that day lasted, it was hard labor. Um, but their books were, um, you know, they were looking at ancient Roman histories and philosophers and kind of this Greco-Roman tradition along with the Bible and um, reading sermons from England about all kinds of very progressive ideas. And it, it was very interesting to think that there was a lot to the people who were taking on the job as of, of a juror, that these people were really immersed in scholarship. Um, so, so that was kind of an interesting realization. So once they found the individuals to serve on the jury, there was one man who had sort of left the colony and had his own community a little bit separate, and his name was Lothrop. And can you talk a little bit about him and some of the people in his community, because several of them served on the jury and may have had a big influence on the ultimate guilty decision? That's right. Um, So Lothrop was a minister from England. He was a Puritan who had been persecuted in England and came to Plymouth Colony. And he had many of his followers um, come over to settle, settle in Plymouth Colony. They chose not to settle in Plymouth Colony proper, but in a small offshoot settlement, part of Plymouth, but um, in present-day Situate. Um, It was called Situate back then as well, and um, it's um, not far, and it's right on the ocean, and that's where his community found themselves. And Lothrop was an incredibly well-educated, progressive, uh, thoughtful person who was very much consumed with ideas of equity and humanism and history and again very immersed in this kind of um, Greco-Roman philosophy and he spent his days studying um, and immersed in his books. So his followers, uh, likewise, were well-educated, and um, these these men were kind of the prized jurors that the leadership in Plymouth Colony sought. And Lothrop was kind of chafing up against uh, the leadership in Plymouth Colony, and he, he really wanted to get out of there and bring his followers with him and head to Cape Cod, which was a remote area, and really be able to kind of stake his his place away from Plymouth Colony and kind of the more rigid thinking that was in the settlement. But before he could leave, the leadership in Plymouth Colony wanted his ministers and would not grant him permission until after this trial. So indeed, at the by the time the trial took place, almost half the jury was made up of uh, Lothrop followers. And um, it was this group of people who may have have very much influenced and swayed the jury. Along with the case was sort of Plymouth's own renewal, as you were talking about the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they were really thriving, and Plymouth was was degenerating a little bit, and mm-hmm. that the renewal in some way relied on his prosecution. Why? That's a great question. A couple of reasons. If the Peach Gang were not prosecuted, 
and if neighboring tribes felt that this murder was one of more to come, that violence um, that they were seeing in the Pequot War would soon be unfolding right on their doorstep, they had reason to band together and possibly fight the Plymouth Colony settlers. And this wasn't a far-fetched idea. In 1637, there was discussion between Wampanoag and Narragansett doing exactly that. And it was none other than Roger Williams, um, Providence, Rhode Island founder, who had the ear of the Narragansett and said, no, 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 don't, don't go down that path. You can trust us, and so on. By 1638, with this, with this murder, the Narragansett were up in arms and were enraged. And this was exactly the kind of violence they feared. And Roger Williams, with his reassurances, were no longer enough. And the trial had the opportunity to bolster the pleas for stability and peace and mutual respect between settlers and indigenous. But it depended on the outcome of the trial. And not only that, Plymouth was also experimenting with democracy and nation building. And if they had been unable to successfully complete this trial, if it had devolved into chaos, if the Peach Gang had escaped, as one member indeed did, it would have uh, really colored the colony leadership with um, kind of the blush of incompetence. And it was just the last thing they needed. But even more pressing than that was, was this real fear that the war was going to be reignited, and this time not far away in remote Connecticut, but right on their doorstep. Another thing that, that hung in the balance with this verdict was Dorothy. Now, she's the young indentured service servant that lived in another household that Peach impregnated. And her, her life um, as an impregnated indentured servant with him as the father did not seem to have a good outcome either way. But can you can you share more about Dorothy and what it might have been like for um, an indentured servant unmarried at that time to be pregnant and then have all of this extra baggage on top of it? That's a great question. There's very little on women in this period on the record. So it was fascinating to not only have a look at the life of a woman at the time, but especially this tortured existence was just um, very heartbreaking to get a glimpse into just the societal structures that were set up to work against her in every way. Um, she worked and lived in the Stephen Hopkins household, and Hopkins was this kind of um, notorious rabble rouser. He was running an illicit tavern and she lived there. And Plymouth Colony had set up this kind of impossible situation with indentured servants where they were recruiting these young, mostly men, but there were a few women, um, young, prime of their lives, um, I'm sure would have wanted to have um, a romantic partner in their lives. And yet, for these seven years of their young lives, were not allowed to marry. And this is a Puritan community. There's no romantic relationship outside of marriage. So they were setting up an impossible situation. And while many young women of the day who were not indentured servants did get pregnant out of wedlock, they were quickly married. 
But if you're an indentured servant, um, as Dorothy Temple was, and you found yourself pregnant, you were not allowed to get married, and you had de facto done something to break the law. So they waited until she gave birth, and um, they whipped her. They did not complete the whipping because she passed out. Um, I mean, the, this was a violent uh, castigation of her as a postpartum woman. I mean, it's it, it's it's very hard to even imagine how how brutal the situation was. Um, Hopkins no longer wanted her in his home. Um, Peach is gone. She ends up. Um, having her indenture contract swapped over to the man who had carried out the whipping. She lives there. Um, and then the trail kind of runs cold as to what happened to her. But life uh, surely could not have been pleasant, um, especially once she was kind of cast out of any chance at joining the society as a single mother becoming um, in this Puritan landscape, something of a pariah. So it, it was a heartbreaking situation for her. What do you think brought the jurors to, in the end, to prosecute Peach? Well, so I, you know, I've given this quite a bit of thought. And, you know, I think in some ways it's easy to say, okay, maybe the verdict was expedient. But I look at those jurors, I've studied them very carefully, and each one swore an oath to look at the evidence and weigh it carefully and offer a verdict of their conscience. And the oath was a serious business. As I outlined in the book, if you break your oath, um, you lose your land, your home, your destitute with your family and children. It was a very serious undertaking um, when someone made an oath. And I have every belief that they found Peach guilty because they found him guilty on the evidence. And I think if anything, there was a groundswell of um, giving Peach the benefit of the doubt. He was a soldier. Um, there was no witness to the crime. Um, there was this very tricky situation where Penawanyanquis's body was not available after he passed away. His body disappeared. So Roger Williams had not, he had seen Penawanyanquis gravely ill, but he had not seen him dead. So there was this question, you know, do we even have a murder here? There's no body. Um, so th there were some real legal questions that could have given this jury an out, um, so to speak. But I think at the end of the day, they looked at the evidence and there was enough there. And um, as I detail in the book, two Narragansett tribesmen um, came to the trial against, you know, fighting every fear they must have had. Um, it was documented that they had to really be encouraged because they were so concerned about their safety at attending the trial and served as witnesses um, to testify that Penawanyanquis was indeed dead. And I, I think that it was truly um, these two brave Narragansett who came to the trial and their testimony that probably made the difference and led to the guilty verdict. And what do you think the ramifications are of that jury trial and that decision in our society and our legal system today? I think at the, at the time you have this guilty verdict 
And I think there's even a moment of surprise. Um, it worked. This jury trial did work. Here we are at a time of war where you have settlers killing indigenous people on the battlefield, but this was a murder. He laid in wait, he murdered this man. Could a, a soldier be convicted in court of the murder of an indigenous man? And it, it wasn't, um, no one was assuming that they knew the answer to this question. And when the jury handed down the verdict, I think there was a bit of surprise. I think there was a bit of a feeling of, you know, th this was the trial of the 17th century. And I, I think there was a, a feeling of it worked. We have a judicial system that's functioning, and this is going to be a building block of our democracy. Um, and I think it gave us a long tradition of upholding liberty in the decades and centuries that followed. And, you know, when we look at the writings around the revolution, you know, and, and these feelings of, um, you know, why, why we wanted to revolt against the British around the revolution, they were echoing ideas about democracy and civil liberties and speaking specifically about the need of the safeguard against injustice of a jury trial. And those ideas all harken back, not just around the revolution, but to these early days of the settlement when our democracy really began, when these ideas were nurtured and cradled and considered and it was kind of the thought exercise of the day. What is our democracy going to look like here apart from England? And it, it took until 1776 for that to be enacted. But those ideas, this idea of a jury trial, of not having one tyrant get his way, those ideas were kind of held long and fast starting back in 1620 and cer certainly in 1638, finally enacted. And did you learn something along the way that you'd want to share about writing this, either about writing or the trial? One interesting piece of the book that I just think is extraordinary is, you know, th this story has been told many times, but just never in a book length form. But if, if you ask academics about these events, they'll, they'll know them well. But the little boy, Will, a Pequot boy who was living in Roger Williams' home, had such an enormous role in these events. None of this would have happened without Will. And I suspect he was about 10 or 11 years old. He is the one who was racing through the woods after the murder was uncovered to help apprehend the Peach Gang. And the story has been told many, many, many times without Will. And I'm glad I was able to kind of find him in this history and shine a light on him and his role. And um, I think that's something that if I ever write another book like this, you know, I always want to be on the lookout. You know, the story's been recounted, but what else is here? Is there someone else here in the story who hasn't been considered? And it, maybe it's because they're a woman. Maybe it's because they're a person of color. Maybe it's because they're a child. But I hope histories can be uncovered in a fuller way. Yes. And Will, as you said, he he lived with Williams, who was, what was his role again? Williams title? Well, Roger Williams in 1638 
had founded the settlement of Providence, Rhode Island. He did not yet have a charter from King Charles I, so it was not officially a colony. He was not officially a governor um, until later in the 1640s. So uh, I just refer to him as a settlement leader. Yeah. So he he fought for equality, but he owned this young slave. His his um, will, young will, his family was separated. His mom and some siblings went to another family and he was with Williams and Williams had some maybe plans to let him be free later in life, but you never know. And it just sort of encapsulated the hypocrisy, like even the best people of that time who wanted to do the right thing still lived in so much paradox. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. And that was the challenge of telling the story at all. You know, how can these themes of democracy be pulled from a story with so many horrors? And I felt a lot of trepidation about that. And I think um, what I did want to do, I thought it was an important story, but shine a light on these horrors. And yeah, Williams is known as an abolitionist. And um, I did refer to Will in the book as a slave. He um, was in this murky population who were considered prisoners of war. Um, many Pequot were sent into slavery to Bermuda. Uh, many were killed on the battlefield. And then you have a child like Will with an abolitionist who sees him in a crowd of Pequot prisoners of war and points him out and says, I want him. And I'll take that one and give him a name. And his autonomy is erased. And the record doesn't adequately show whether at some point that servitude ended or like other indigenous tribes people, it could have continued on into slavery. Like um, Governor Winthrop in Mass Bay Colony clearly details in his will to his descendants, I give you my Indians. And that is not a reference to prisoners of war, but to slaves. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So this is from Outside Magazine, uh, December 29th, 09. And the writer is Bob Friel. And I started reading this kind of narrative nonfiction back then. And that's kind of what gave me the bug and what I wanted to do with this story. And here, um, Friel is writing about a 17-year-old kid who is um, a large kid. He's six foot five, and he's never been in an airplane before. And I'll read a a quick passage from from this. Um, The mountains create a lot of weather, and on a good day, this means lively turbulence. On November 12, 2008, it it meant wind gusts exploding against the little Cessna like aerial depth charges, causing one massive buzzkill. The ride would have been extremely uncomfortable, says Eric Gurley, chief pilot for San Juan Airlines and a flight instructor with somewhere north of 13,000 hours in the air. Gurley spent time as an Alaskan bush pilot, so uncomfortable to him means the equivalent of spinning inside a commercial clothes dryer. He's a fellow resident of mine on Orcas Island and taught the owner of the stolen plane popular Seattle radio personality, Bob Rivers, how to fly. Now he just shakes his head considering a kid with no training flying over the Cascades that morning saying it's almost unbelievable he made it. The police believe it though. 
Once past the violent updrafts, the kid flew on until 11 a.m. when he attempted to land in a scrub field on the Yakima Indian Reservation about 300 miles from where he took off. The Cessna came in hot and hit hard, bouncing back into the air before impacting again and nosediving into a gully, the propeller blades tearing up the earth. The pilot trashed the plane, but he walked or ran away, the minimum test of a successful landing. When police got to the scene, they found the cockpit splattered in puke. Other than bits of his breakfast, though, the pilot left no trace and disappeared into the woods. Tell me why you chose that. I think Friel did an excellent job with something I tried to do in my book. Um, and I, I don't know what other people call it, but I call it parallel research. Um, so Friel doesn't have this kid to interview about what it was like being in that plane. So he interviews Eric Gorley, the chief pilot, um, who knows just exactly what it's like. And then they have to layer over that a kid who's never even been in a plane before. So I think he sets the scene really well in a situation that would be very hard to set the scene. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. Uh, so this is from the murder scene of my book, um, Penawanyank was the murder victim. Adrenaline surely rising, Penawanyank was sprinted and tripped through the warm, murky water farther into the depths of the swamp. Thick clumps of impenetrable reeds sliced his ankles. The injuries erupted in blinding pain. Blood gushed from his stomach wounds into dark liquid clouds around him as his body sank. One last time, Penawanyanquist heard them close by him and tried to elude his pursuers. He ventured even farther into the swamp till he fell down again when they lost him quite. Penawanyanquist himself was likely quite lost at this point and critically injured. He prayed for help. The dense vegetation obscured the sun and any means of navigation and the enormous lush leaves of stinking skunk cabbage plants underfoot emitted an unpleasant, dizzying heat. He left no record of the hours he spent hiding in the swamp, but a fellow Algonquin man born in the 18th century wrote about the panic he himself felt after getting lost in a similarly impassable environment. Shut out from the light of heaven, surrounded by appalling darkness, standing on uncertain ground, and having proceeded so far that to return, if possible, were as dangerous as to go over. This was the hour of peril. I could not call for assistance on my fellow creatures. There was no mortal ear to listen to my cry. I was shut out from the world and did not know but that I should perish there and my fate forever to forever remain a mystery to my friends. And so it was for Penawanyanquis. He was out of reach of Peach's rapier, but he remained lost, injured, and disoriented in a nightmarish scene. Tell me why you chose that. Oh, same reasons I chose the other excerpt. Um, I wasn't there, and I want to give the reader a sense of what it might have been like. I used that same kind of parallel research um, and also kind of feet on the ground. Um, you know, I've gone hiking in that area and um, similar environment with that skunk cabbage, and but mostly for the parallel research. I think it gives a reader a window um, that I might not otherwise have been able to have provided. Where do you write? Anywhere. I, I don't have a lot of time to do it, so absolutely anywhere. Um, in my car, if I'm doing errands and I have an extra hour, I'll pull over and write. Or just, you know, once we got a dog, um, I, I write at home as much as I can because I love being um, with my dog. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Because I don't have a lot of free time for it, um, I don't 
often have that feeling. It's more trying to steal five minutes here or there um, to get back to something and rework a page and um, fit it in. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'm very lucky. My husband um, is a superb writer, um, the novelist Matthew Pearl, who also does a lot of nonfiction writing. And um, he has this wonderful quality. He can, um, you know, I might see a problem in something I'm writing, and he is very good at seeing a solution. So it's, um, he's a wonderful reader. How have you dealt with rejection? I anticipate it as kind of one step in the process. It's, um, you know, for every success with something you're working on and you just need one thing to go your way, but there's, you know, 10 other things that might not have, and, and that's okay. Cause it's just kind of, um, stepping stones to get where you're going. And what is your favorite word? Home. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. It was such a pleasure, Mitzi. Thank you so very much. This was a really fun morning. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Toby Pearl, author of the nonfiction book, Terror to the Wicked. If you like today's show, check out my interview with David Gran, author of the nonfiction book Killers of the Flower Moon, which tells the story of the methodical killing of members of the Osage Nation in the 1920s after oil reserves made them some of the richest people in the world. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.